Timothy Alberino is the best-selling author of Birthright, The Coming Post-Human Apocalypse and the Usurpation of Adam's Dominion on Planet Earth. In it, he offers a unique perspective on humanity's history and also looks at some of the most alarming data about where humanity is heading, especially when it comes to an extraterrestrial presence which is not benign, which he believes is going to be integral to the imposition of the transhumanist agenda. You're listening to Exopolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala, your source for the uncensored truth regarding the human, extraterrestrial, global, and political agenda. Click the like button and subscribe to this channel. And now, here's Dr. Michael Sala. Well, welcome back to Exopolitics Today, Timothy. Thank you so much for having me back on. Well, I just finished reading your book, which was truly fascinating, very well written, uh, very well researched, uh, a lot of really good data you were able to combine uh, looking at ancient history and some of the more recent information concerning uh, the extraterrestrial presence, especially when it comes to the, the abduction phenomenon and transhumanism. So I just want to congratulate you on really integrating all those elements so in such an interesting way. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you for saying that. Well, I would like to just set the scene for uh, what you wrote about in terms of you know where we are as a planetary civilization, given what's happening with... Uh, the extraterrestrial presence and with transhumanism by kind of like going back to the beginning in terms of um, the, you know, humanity's creation and the involvement of, of different gods or extraterrestrials. And originally in our first interview, you talked about this golden age where there was uh, these extraterrestrials that ruled directly over humanity. And you described how that was, a positive for the contemporaries at the time, but as far as the ancient Hebrews were concerned, they kind of envisaged that in a more negative light. So uh, you also talk about an elder race, that the elder race, in I guess, in whose image humanity was created, um, is involved. So you want to just explain where the elder race fit in and, and who are the Elohim? Okay. Uh, well, this is going to be very theological, obviously. So... Um, I have some common ground with ancient astronaut theory. The common ground I have with that particular theory is I believe and I affirm that the Hebrew Bible portrays a situation in which mankind has been in direct contact with extraterrestrial entities since his conception. And that may seem to your audience uh, a very mundane declaration, but, but to Christians around the world, that would be a shocking statement that would ring in their ears in a, in a way that would be, in, in some, to some degree, uncomfortable. But this is, in fact, the narrative of the Bible, the narrative of the Hebrew Scriptures. Mankind has been in contact with extraterrestrials since the beginning. These extraterrestrials are denominated, ambiguously denominated, as angels in the Hebrew text. Angel simply means messenger in both Greek and Hebrew. <clears throat> in Greek, it's angelos. In Hebrew, it's malak. 
It's just a messenger and envoy, one who is sent. But we get a, a more profound understanding of who these beings are by some of the other terminology that's used to describe them, such as the sons of God. And we know because of the book of Job, which is probably the oldest book in the Hebrew Bible, uh, the book of Job declares that the sons of God shouted for joy, the Benai Elohim shouted for joy when the earth was created, when the foundations of the earth were laid. So these entities are, they are certainly pre-existent, they pre-exist mankind, and they are most definitely extraterrestrial. Uh, obviously, the word extraterrestrial means uh, not of this earth, it, it, a being whose provenance, whose origin is not planet earth. If And it doesn't matter whether we're talking um, the cosmos, whether we're talking another planet, or whether we're talking another dimension. Uh, if if an entity has an origin other than planet Earth, then it is by definition extraterrestrial. And so uh, these beings that we call angels that we're familiar with in the biblical text are certainly extraterrestrial. So that is, uh, I think, a an area of, of commonality that I have with uh, many people, many researchers in the UFO field, in the UFO space. Um, and again, it is a it's a commonality I also have with ancient astronaut theory, although I part ways with ancient astronaut theory and, um, on, on several different important points. Um, so we can establish right off the bat from a biblical worldview that mankind has indeed been in contact with extraterrestrials who have had a great deal of influence, both positive and negative, on his development throughout the millennia. Where does the actual elder race fit into that and, and the Elohim? Because we're talking about extraterrestrials being associated with humanity pretty much from the get-go. Of course, the uh, those familiar with the Anunnaki or the Sumerian literature, uh, they would say, well, the that, that's because the extraterrestrials created humanity. Whereas, of course, in the uh, from in Hebrew, oh, well, there is some Hebrew scriptures that refers to the Elohim. And of course, there's the big controversy over, you know, Elohim. Are we talking about a, a singular um, absolute deity or are we talking about a plurality of gods like uh, Paul Wallace and uh, people like that uh, argue? You're talking about, again, within the context of the Hebrew Bible, you're talking about a king and his council. That's the language of the Elohim. It's this divine council, as Michael Heiser puts it, Dr. Michael Heiser, the late Michael Heiser. It's a divine council. In other words, just like earthly kingdoms would have a king, and then that king would have a council and a court, and courtiers and messengers and so forth, I contend that human governance, that our kingdoms, that our, even our, to some extent, our political systems, um, that we didn't invent them, we inherited them. That, there, that a kingdom pre-existed us and indeed exists still and is the primary force in the universe. And that this kingdom is governed by a king, a supreme being, and this king has a council. 
And so in, in the Hebrew text, when the word Elohim is employed, it's used for all different kinds of things. Elohim sometimes is used to refer to Yahweh. It's sometimes used to refer to just, just uh, uh, celestial beings, heavenly beings. Um, so in the beginning of Genesis, when we read, let us create man in our image, much ado has been made about that, the plurality, and rightly so. There's a, it is a plural, let us create man in our image. And it's a very simple explanation. And, it, and the explanation is that it is the king and his council. It's a deliberation between the king and his council, among the king and his council, this decision to create a new species. However, the prerogative, the actual act of creating is, is done by, uh, uh, rather the act of creating is the prerogative of the king of the council, because according to the biblical text, this, the, the, the king of the council is the son of God, and he is delineated from the rest of these heavenly beings, and that he is the very maker of the universe. In fact, I call him the singularity. He is the Big Bang. The, the New Testament de describes him as uh, that. Uh, um, the New Testament declares that all things were created through him and by him and for him, and in him all things consist. So the Son of God is just not another being, celestial entity among these other celestial entities. He is the supreme Son. He is the preeminent Son. He is the creator, the maker of heaven and earth and all that is. And, and his counsel is, sub, is subject to him. And so this plurality of language is not, it does not necessarily indicate that you have a bunch of gods that are equal in status. Rather, you have a supreme being and who is ruling over these other gods, these other celestial beings uh, uh, who are, for all intents and purposes, who are gods. Um, and are called such in in the biblical text, but it's better to think of them as these are these are a a an elder race of beings that were created a very long time ago, who knows how long ago, and who preexist mankind and are again according to the, the the book of Psalms, according to David, we were created a little bit lower than these beings in terms of. Uh, our physiology and in terms of our capabilities, we were created to be a little bit lower than these beings. So they, they pre-exist us and, uh, and uh, they surpass us in terms of their physiology. Um, but make no mistake about it, there is a supreme being who governs all others and to whom these beings, these Elohim, uh, are subject. And the ones that are not subject to him are in a state of rebellion. And these would be the insurrectionary sons of God, the apostate sons of God. And again, this is all within the context of within the context of the universe and, and extraterrestrial world, extraterrestrial enter, entities um, uh, who were inhabiting this kingdom before we ever showed up on the scene of planet Earth. Well, I mean, what you've described fits in very well also with the Enuma Elish, which is the uh, oldest creation story uh, from uh, ancient Sumer. And it describes exactly something very similar, that there was an assembly of deities, of gods, Elohim, whatever you want to call them, uh, and that, they, that there was a king, uh, the leader, and that uh, they decided to create humans, that humans were a product of that 
assembly um, discussing the need for the creation of this race. And they also talk about a rebellion and they talk about the rebellion of the of, of, a, of a race or a subset of the Anunnaki called the Igigi. So, you know, there you have very similar elements to what mm-hmm. to what you de- what you describe now now in the uh, book of Enoch it refers to the leader or this king of, of the heavens as the ancient of days uh, of course in the Sumerian texts it refers to him as Anu of the Hebrews refer to him as Yahweh are we talking about the same being or are they different beings well as we discussed last time I think it's a m- mistake to think that the Sumerian text is the first text, the original text. I think that the original texts on which all of these ancient texts are based uh, is prehistoric. It, it, there are texts and stories, oral traditions and written accounts that predate the Hebrew account and the Sumerian account that come to us from the world before the cataclysm, the antediluvian world. And so uh, we would expect to find similarities in these accounts and others if they're all based on the same story. And we, we, we would also expect to find the variations in the story and in the characters and in the details because they're not it's not an unbroken. It's not uh, as if the Sumerian text came first and then the Hebrew text was was based on the Sumerian text or the Egyptian accounts were based on the Sumerian accounts. Rather, all of them are drawing from prehistoric documents and stories, oral traditions. Um, and so the source, we should look to the source of these stories, not again, not in, in Sumer, rather in the world before the great cataclysm. That would be yep. my, uh, my viewpoint on the source right. material. And, and we talked about the book of Enoch as, as right. being that text that uh, does have that kind of unambiguous connection to this right. pre-flood world yeah. and, and that there, there's a reference to that being handed down. Now, now, one of the things that I find fascinating in the book of Enoch, and I wanted you to maybe elaborate on this, is that, it, it, of course, it describes Enoch being taken into the heavens, seeing the different realms of the angels, positive angels, negative, uh, fallen angels, and so forth. And, and it describes him going through an anointment process. Now, I wonder if that anointment process, and others have commented on this, uh, that that, in fact, actually, that anointment process that Enoch underwent it, while he was traveling through the heavens is nothing other than him actually going through a decontamination process as he enters into the different ships uh, that are piloted by the extraterrestrials. That you know, we're not talking about some ethereal heaven. We're talking about Enoch being a contactee, being taken to the uh, ships of these extraterrestrials, and going through a decontamination process, and eventually meeting with the leader, you know, the, the king of the extraterrestrials or the uh, of the angels. Well, there's the book of Enoch is divided into two portions, really m- two main portions. The beginning is called the book of the watchers. And the book of the watchers is a is written in a as a historical narrative. And that's the that's what we talked about last time that details the the uh, the activity of the watchers and the their um, their progeneration of hybrid giants on Earth with human women and so forth. And then after that, 
you get the parables of Enoch in which Enoch is relating dreams and visions. So it's visionary content, much like the content of the Old Testament that was written by the various prophets. It, it's very, very much a perceptual experience that Enoch begins to have and record. Um, and so I would, uh, I wouldn't take after the book of the watchers, all the material that, uh, uh, that comes after the book of the Watchers uh, in the, within the book of Enoch, I would say is is very heavily metaphoric. It's symbolic. Again, it's in the context of dreams and visions and parables. Um, there may be some experiences in there that Enoch actually had in terms of actually, I mean, physically was somewhere other than earth. Um, but I doubt it. I think that it's very much written in, in, in the way that, again, the the Old Testament, uh, the, the books of the Old Testament prophets, it's, it's the, the same kind of language, the same kind of figures of speech and metaphor and symbolism. And so I would say that all of that material is subject to interpretation, you know, because it's prophetic iconography. Very interesting. Um, well, I, I have kind of gone over the, the the three books of Enoch, and we talked about that last time. In the second book of Enoch, uh, the Slavonic, the, the Slavonic uh, book mm -hmm. of Enoch, um, it actually describes uh, Enoch uh, being given forewarning that he would be taken off, off planet, you know, or he would be taken into the heavens for a period of time, mm -hmm. and that and that he would, and then when he would come back, he would have so much time to write up everything, and then he would leave again. So that's the second you know, book of Enoch. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's, to me, when I read that, it's describing uh, an extraterrestrial contact experience. It, it very well may be, but you have to keep in mind that the second Enoch and third Enoch are definitively dated to uh, after Christ, to after the time of Christ, so uh, after the first century AD. Whereas the first book of Enoch, um, there are many scholars who would who would date at least the beginning portion of that book um, would be BC, and uh, I and 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 there are also scholars who would say that the entire document, the entire manuscript of First Enoch, uh, the provenance is is BC. It's before Christ. So um, there, that's that's an important that is an important. Um, delineation between those books the reason why it's so important is because one thing that the that first enoch does that is remarkable absolutely remarkable is it contains messianic content that can only pertain to jesus of nazareth and in fact much of the content of first enoch provides foundational material for what's written in the new testament by the new testament writers and so uh, it's it's some of the most astounding messianic prophecies you find them in first enoch clearly referring to this man jesus of nazareth who would be born hundreds if not thousands of years after these things were written that distinguishes it distinguishes first enoch from second enoch and third enoch again it's very important to keep that in mind um second enoch third enoch were written after after uh, the birth of Christ in in the first, second, third centuries A.D. Um, now, but do they describe, does second Enoch and third Enoch describe some sort of contact with extraterrestrial beings? Well, I would go back 
to re re reiterate what I said in the beginning that the 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 biblical text that we that that we're all familiar with describes this kind of contact with extraterrestrial beings, and I do believe that uh, when we talk about in the in the biblical text when we encounter these these vehicles of conveyance called chariots of fire or the chariots of God or the chariots of Israel, all of these things are referencing the same kind of vehicles. What we're talking about are not flying chariots with you know flying horses. What we're talking about are advanced aerospace vehicles. And so certainly the, the Hebrews were encountering um, advanced beings, uh, extraterrestrial beings, uh, who were uh, who were um, employing these these uh, vehicles of conveyance, these these advanced aerospace vehicles. I would certainly confirm that. Now, whether or not the second Enoch or third Enoch is is actually describing that, I I don't know. Most of my familiar familiarity is with first Enoch, although I have read second and third Enoch, but they're sort of jumbled together in my mind. The contents of those two manuscripts uh one of the things that kind of like emerges from uh the, the all three books of enoch is is that uh, enoch is this uh really incredible figure in the antediluvial world and in the kind of like post-flood world as well because he he was the one that received the wisdom from the heavens from the different extraterrestrial uh fleets if you want to go down that path and and that he was able to then relay that onto his son Methuselah who then um, kind of like preserved the wisdom for the post-flood world now you know this raises uh, the question uh, is Enoch a Hebrew translation of the Egyptian term Toth uh, who is the Egyptian god of wisdom, and he also has this kind of very mm -hmm. long lineage. And some have equated Enoch and Toth. So, mm -hmm. you know, so is this really where you, you, the Hebrew and the Egyptian and the Sumerian kind of like worldview kind of like merge together? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. I think we are looking at the same characters. I think the 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 the, the antediluvian patriarchs are recast in these stories, but the but the you know, the, the defining attributes are, are preserved. The names may change and the details may change, but, but the defining attributes are preserved. And again, this goes back to the idea that all of these stories are drawing upon the same sources, but because of cultural differences and, and other reasons, um, different languages and so forth, the, the names and the, it's, a, it's, it's kind of like a game of telephone, you know, the information being passed down through the generations some of the information being lost, some of it being uh, purposely um, uh, uh, changed or altered in some way. But I, I think there's very clearly a, 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 a link between these characters through, certainly through, especially through, let's say, the ancient Egyptians, the, the Sumerians and Akkadians and the, and, and, the, uh, and, the, and the Hebrews. Very, very strong link between those cultures. And in fact, you know, it, it could be said that all of these cultures, including the Hebrews, are fundamentally Mesopotamian, even Egypt. They all came from the Fertile Crescent. They all came from the same area, which I think is where civilization began to uh, began to uh, reemerge after the cataclysm. 
that destroy the world. And so it, it's, it seems to me that, uh, that, that we should expect to find a lot of similarities between these cultures. Uh, yes, exactly. And one of the things that is very intriguing is when we look at the Sumerian kings list and the, uh, the, the uh, reign of the different pharaohs described uh, by Manetho concerning Egypt and compare that to the uh, Hebrew texts about the mm -hmm. age of the patriarchs. I mean, the, the Sumerian kings list describes how the, the gods, the original gods, mm -hmm. lived for like tens of thousands of years. The demigods lived for like a, roughly a thousand years. And then humans lived for kind of like the, the conventional 70-year period. And, of course, in the Hebrew Bible, you have something very similar where you have the patriarchs, Adam, Seth, Jared, uh, Enoch, Methuselah, Noah, all living up to close to a thousand years. Mm -hmm. That's right. So, you know, th th does that mean that the patriarchs, again, is just a rebranding? Those patriarchs are rebranding of kind of like demigods, as, you know, in, in the day, uh, the, all these figures, all these patriarchs, Jared, Enoch, would have been considered uh, demigods. Uh, they were certainly revered, yes. Um, and uh, there is an overlay. There is an overlay between the, the Sumerian kings list and the and the Hebrew patriarchs, pre-flood patriarchs. And it is very intriguing. And I know that there is some dispute among the ancient Near East scholars regarding those ages in the Sumerian texts, um, because it's, it's a dispute over the zeros, how many zeros are actually attached to those lifespans. Um, and in fact, there's a dispute in, the, in, in regard to the biblical account as well, because the Septuagint adds 100 years to the lifespans. Well, I should rather I should say that the Masoretic text, the one that we're all familiar with, the, the, the one that almost every Bible uh, in the world is is derived from, subtracts 100 years from the lifespans of the patriarchs. Um, and so there, there is a lot of dispute over both on the, among ancient Near Eastern scholars, scholars regarding both the Sumerian lifespans of the king's list and also the patriarchs, the biblical patriarchs. But, but certainly they overlay. I mean, setting aside the fact that the Sumerian, you're talking about thousands and, and thousands of years, the, the patriarchs overlay. And it's almost a one-to-one -one, um, when you compare the kings to the patriarchs. Yes, I think it's very important uh, because I think it has implications also for you know what what you uh, later described in your book in terms of uh, human long longevity. I mean, uh, these lifespans of the patriarchs, Adam, Seth, Jared, is is that part of the human birthright, or or is that something that was just unique to them, and that this 70, 80 years lifespan of, of normal humans is is all we can uh, expect? Well, in the biblical narrative, we, there's a point at which God actually declares that that the lifespan of mankind would be reduced to 120 years, and then it gets down to 70. Um, but I believe that the reason why we see these these long lifespans in the in the antediluvian world is because you're closer to the source. You're much closer to the original human beings, the prototypical human beings. And so there would be much less genetic mutational load in the human genome. We, as we, we're copies of copies of copies all the way to the beginning. And so uh, every new generation of human beings is going to be carrying a new, a, is, is going to be carrying more mutational load. And when we talk about mutational load, what we're talking about is 
deleterious mutations, negative mutations that break us down. And so if you, if you reverse that pro process and you retrograde back in through time, then you're getting less and less and less mutations in the genome going all the way back to the original uh, genetic code, Adam, and which was flawless. So uh, it makes sense that, that uh, we're becoming, that human beings are becoming weaker and are becoming overly burdened, genetically speaking, with these mutations as time goes on, increasingly burdened, rather, as time goes on, which leads to all kinds of disease, which leads to, um, all, which leads to all manner of ailments. Um, and the only reason why today our lifespans are slowly increasing in some quarters is because of technology. We have a, we have a facade of fitness that is sustained by technological props. And what I mean by that is we have all kinds of medical interventions that are keeping us al alive longer, that are bolstering the, the, uh, the human populace in terms of our life expectancy, where if, if you were to kick these technological props out from under us, um, human, the human populace would collapse. Uh, all the people who are on insulin, all the people who are who have uh, evaded cancer because of medical interventions and heart disease and all these things, these people would just die. Um, and all of these things have increased: cancer, heart disease, diabetes. It's it's all increased, and not just in the West, all over the world, and in fact, not just in human beings, in animals as well. So, um, we are undergoing a process. We are subject to the to the force of entropy. We are, we are undergoing a process of devolution, degeneration. Um, we're not uh, evolving. We are devolving and have been for thousands of years. And, uh, you know, I believe that our genetic clock is expiring. And in fact, we're, I'm kind of launching us into, I know I'm getting away from your question, but I believe that, rather, it's not that I believe, it's scientists have conducted some, some, some tests regarding I don't know if you've seen this in the recent in, in recent years regarding the the male sperm count worldwide, especially in the West. And they have they have they're they're raising the alarm that that the sperm count is is going to go to zero by 2045. Zero. That means that the human species is going to be reproductively inviable. We're not going to be able to reproduce naturally anymore. And this this kind of you know, gets into the transhumanism and posthumanism and all of that. But I say that just as a, just to highlight the idea that the further we progress in time, the more we degrade, genetically speaking, the more degeneration and mutational load we carry as a species. And so if you go all the way back in time, you get to the original progenitors, and we should expect them to be living extremely long lifespans. These are the prototypical human beings um, and we're much more capable and, and grand than we are today in, in every way, Phys in, in their, in their, in their, uh, physical bodies, in their, their intellectual capacity. I believe even, and, and this is just sort of a, a curveball, but I believe that the human species is inherently telepathic. I believe that we were, we are a telepathic species, but we've lost the capability over time. Those are, and there's other capabilities I think that we've lost uh, because of genetic degeneration. 
Well, that's a really important question, that genetic uh, deterioration over, over the course of thousands of years. I mean, is, is that where we get to the idea of this kind of like deep state or this kind of negative association of uh, extraterrestrials or, or kind of like satanic leaders that have been doing everything they can to kind of like dumb down uh, the human genome so that we live shorter and shorter lives. Because as you said, in that antediluvian era, you know, humans could live for up to a thousand years. So, so ever since that time, and as that kind of like diagram that I think uh, we, we just had up, I'll just put it up again, shows, I mean, it just shows the the, the mm. incredible kind of like uh, shortening, you know, from the, from the kind of pre-flood figures. You can see Noah there in the middle, you know, there he lives to 900. And, and then, then there's this rapid decline. So it, it does suggest that some, some, this something was behind this degradation. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, is this where we have the, the deep state, the satanic uh, forces kind of like conspiring to make uh, humans, kind of, and it makes sense. I mean, a population is easier to control if, you know, if they live for like 70 years as opposed to 700 years. I would say that the project of, let's just call them Luciferian elite, uh, the, the, their project is, is eternal life. They want to, uh, they want to, increase their own lifespans. They want to, through directed evolution, to evolve out of Adam, so to speak, into a post-human condition. And by doing so, evade death. I think that's the primary, uh, that's the primary concern that is the all-consuming desire by these people is to evade death, to cheat death. And, but also, these people are are working to construct a global technocratic system of control um, in which human beings are every every aspect of our lives and of our biology and of our uh, of our um, finances. Everything we do is controlled uh, is is not only uh, controlled but 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 extremely heavily manipulated. And there, that's really the great danger right now. Is this is the is the um, the architecture that's being put into place through new technologies, artificial intelligence, uh, for example. It's an architect. It's an architecture of technocratic totalitarian control. And uh, and I believe that one of the objectives is going to be to reduce the population, the human population uh, to somewhere around under a billion, perhaps even 500 million, I think is what it said on the Georgia Guidestones, um, to reduce the population. And the reason why they want to reduce the population, it, it isn't really for climate change, it's more about totalitarian control, is because human beings are no longer needed. They don't need us anymore. See the elite, the, the the ruling elite. We can call them globalists, even even going back a couple hundred years. Um, they needed the human populace to work in the factories during the industrial revolution. The industrial revolution needed it. It required human effort. We had the mechanization of agriculture and of in all kinds of different industries. 
but but that mechanization still required human effort. It still required human beings to feed the machines. It still required human beings to work in the factory lines. And it required a lot of human beings, actually. And so the effort at that time was to get as many people into that workforce as possible to produce as many products and make as much money. Um, but the fourth industrial revolution, as Klaus Schwab styles it, the, the revolution that's coming and, and indeed that has already begun does not, is, is going to not require nearly as many human beings. It is going to be a revolution that is primarily driven by robot, robotics and artificial intelligence. In other words, everything is going to be automated. And so human beings are truly going to become, in, in the eyes of the technocrats, useless eaters, useless consumers of the resources of the earth. And uh, they just don't, we don't, they don't have any use for so many human beings on the earth. Uh, and so I believe that, that they're certainly, and, and this goes beyond shortening our lifespans. This is about eliminating a large percentage of the human populace off of the planet because most of the menial jobs and even in even a lot of the white collar jobs are going to be in the next decade replaced by artificial intelligence and we're seeing this happen right now that the rise of chat gpt and of uh the the artificial intelligence that is already able to replace so many jobs for example i do a lot of video editing and uh i've been watching videos online that have been being passed around of of artificial intelligence for like this conversation we're having right now would have no problem editing this conversation and doing it in 30 seconds or a minute or something like that, you know, a task that would take several hours for us. So um, even in the creative space, artificial intelligence is already, I'm, I'm watching people who are taking advantage of chat GPT and they're going on there and they're sort of hacking the artificial intelligence and they're, and they're producing books on all kinds of different subjects. They're not producing it. They're just prompting the artificial intelligence to do it. And in fact, there's, there's, there's uh, codes that you can download. There's applications you can download on your phone. You plug these applications in with, with uh, keywords and you can literally start pumping books out. Well-written books on, on a variety of subjects, getting them done in a matter of hours. And of course, artificial intelligence is not so good yet to where it doesn't make any mistakes yet. You know, the human humans have to go in and, and double check and sort of do a proofreading, but that will change in the future. Uh, artificial intelligence will be able to write flawless books, flawless movie scripts. In fact, right now, I believe that that AI can create entire movies by itself, of course, generating uh, photorealistic 3D animations, but it, 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 it can replicate and mimic human creativity, entertainment, music. Um, as I said, a lot of the white collar jobs trading on Wall Street, that's going to be gone. That'll be given over to artificial, artificial intelligence. Um, uh, even the, obviously the factories, which are switching over to robotics and automation, your local grocery store. All of us are seeing less and less human beings working in the grocery store. The first McDonald's, there's an automated McDonald's out there. It's just in a few years, all of the fast food restaurants will be automated. The only human beings who will be interacting uh, in, in, in the grocery stores and in the um, in terms of the employees and in the and in the fast food restaurants will be the engineers who are able to uh, who are who do maintenance on the artificial intelligence on the software and the hardware systems that are in play. So we're already seeing this revolution take place and and uh, it's it's going to knock all kinds of people out of the out of the out of the job market. 
And so you're going to get to a situation in the next five years, certainly in 10 years, in which you're going to have to have a universal income because people are their jobs are going to be taken by artificial intelligence and a, re, and a massive reduction of the population. Because why have all these useful, uh, all, all of these uh, useless eaters around? And certainly this is not happening by happenstance. A lot of this is being controlled and molded by, again, these individuals who I would describe as the technocratic totalitarian elite or totalitarian technocratic elite, the people who are envisioning this, this future. And they, and they think they're the good guys, of course. They think that they are, uh, that they are operating, they're acting in the best interest of the planet and of the species. And here's the question, and I don't know what your thoughts are, that are about this, Michael, but are these individuals, these, these technocratic elite are they some of them at the highest levels are they in contact and perhaps even in league with certain extraterrestrial factions now that's to me a very in intriguing question uh, yeah well I, I think uh the answer to that is, is uh, a resounding yes i think there's i mean uh, two books that impressed me when i first got involved in the kind of this ufo exopolitics field was uh, uh gods of uh, eden by william bramley and um, uh, Jim Ma's book, Rule by Secrecy, and, and both mm -hmm. of them traced out this kind of long history of human manipulation by um, these figures pulling the strings behind the scene, and they, they identified them as extraterrestrials. So um, definitely I think the extraterrestrial manipulation has been happening a long time, and, um, and, I, and I think it, you know, that's, this is where the, the historical aspect comes in, that... It, that that was what brought down this Atlantean civilization, that kind of extraterrestrial manipulation, um, because, I mean, you did have a, a golden age in this kind of like uh, antediluvial world where at some point uh, there, there was some kind of, you know, humans were long-lived, that they were in harmony, some kind of harmony, and then it was during the time of Jared where you had the, the, the fallen angels appear. So that's when this corruption came in. And those that talk about Atlantis, whether we're talking about Edgar Cayce, say the same thing, that Atlantis was a very uh, positive human experiment up until a certain point. And he described them as the sons of Belial. Uh, but but the same process, the degradation, the, the human experimentation with genetics, the chimera, and, and we're witnessing that the same, the same phenomenon. So, I mean, Literally, are we just going through the same process that led to the destruction of the antediluvial world? I think we are. I think we are. I think I call it Genesis 6 2.0. I think we are to some extent going to see a reemergence, by the way, of the antediluvian world order, the, the old world order. Because the new world order isn't about bringing about something new. It's about resurrecting the dead. It's about recreating this this antediluvian order that existed during the golden age in which the gods walk openly among men. Um, and the gods of course would be these extraterrestrial entities. And so, um, uh, you know, it, 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 it's difficult to imagine for me when I think about, uh, the, uh, when I think about all of the things that are unfolding, um, let's say all of these ideas that are coming down from on high. And when I say on high, I'm talking about this, network of of globalists you know the world economic forum is is one of these organizations that everything they want to do is so dehumanizing it's so dehumanizing it, the, of course the famous 
you know, let them eat bugs, basically, uh, scenario that's unfolding. Um, they, they want us to, to eat insects. They want us to. They, there, there are some of these individuals who are advocating for um, uh, for indefinite lockdowns indefinite lockdowns that human beings would have to spend most of the time indoors and, and not having much contact with each other. Why? Not for a virus, but to save the planet from climate change. These are all inhuman ideas, as far as I'm concerned. All of these ideas that are coming down seem to be going, seem to be uh, purposely designed to break down the human society, to destroy psychologically the human being. And it's and, and, it, and it's so easy to think, well, what kind of person would, would do this? And, and if you just kind of and, and I'm not sure that this is the case, but 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 I, I would, you know, it's it's easy for to me to imagine this scenario to think it, it can't be human beings at the top who are contriving these things. It's got to be some sort of a extraterrestrial influence because it's so alien what they want to do. It's so alien uh, to me, it's so anti-human. Uh, the, the even just the the whole transhumanist movement, it's all very much anti-human. Um, and there's a almost a disdain for the offspring of Adam, a disdain for the human species. They they want to degrade us. They want to break apart our institutions. They want to destroy families. Um, they want to. Uh, uh, they want to degradate society, cause us to become deranged psychologically. Um, and obviously, we're being bombarded constantly with uh, manipulation and with propaganda. And it's just we're, we're, we're being saturated in this dehumanizing, um, this dehumanizing force that that, again, for me, it's it, it makes a whole lot of sense if the origin, the the true origin is non-human. Well, I, I think that there is this non-human element. And I, I know in your book, you kind of spend quite a bit of time going over the research of people like uh, Dr. David Jacobs, uh, John mm -hmm. Mack, uh, Bud Hopkins, describing the abduction phenomenon. And uh, I mean, that uh, especially the work of uh, Bud Hopkins, you know, his book, The Threat, I mean, that is uh, describing a situation where this kind of they're, they're creating a, a new hybrid human species that in his opinion uh, that these controllers want to kind of like replace uh, human 1.0 mm -hmm. I mean us with this uh, with these hybrids so um, again you know this has the uncanny parallels with the uh, pre-diluvial, anti-diluvial world. So um, mm -hmm. is, is this, in your view, what's happening right now, yeah. that the hubrids are being created to replace humans? Yes, I do think that that's happening. And yeah, the, the, the threat is, was written by uh, Dr. David Jacobs. Um, but Bud Hopkins sort of really kicked all of this off with his book, Missing Time. Which was a uh, which which kind of began to 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 kick the doors open on the abduction phenomenon and 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 of course both Hopkins and uh, and Jacobs and Carla Turner the late Carla Turner who a lot of people forget about but the late Carla Turner they all were raising the alarm about this this program of hybridization that seemed to have that seemed to be underway and obviously when you read their material. And when you talk to abductees, uh, this this is being carried out by the Greys 
and uh, the insectolins, as Jacobs denominates them. And uh, certainly, I believe that the, I would agree, I would concur with Jacobs' analysis, his um, his final analysis on what their end game is. And he says that the end game of the Greys, from his perspective, is planetary acquisition, that they are they are taking over by stealth. And and who knows what the what the ultimate objective of the hubrids is of the advanced alien human hybrids really is is it is it to move up the echelons of human society is it to climb uh, the ladder of industry of uh, of the militaries around the world the political systems do they want these hubrids ultimate ultimately placed at the pinnacle of, of political and military and industrial power and, and if so, for what end? And again, I would say planetary acquisition, it's conquest by stealth. It's a covert conquest rather than overt. And everything the Greys do is, is clandestine. And that's something that Jacobs would always, uh, would always emphasize is that the project is clandestine. And the Greys certainly are are responsible for the abduction phenomenon and are up to no good, to say the very least, and do constitute a threat. So, so we know the greys, the insectoids, and reptilians, as others have referred to them, are this association or alliance of extraterrestrials that you know, people like Hopkins and Jacobs have referred to as as being involved in abductions and doing. Um, being part of this kind of creation of a of a hybrid race to to replace us, and you know, David Jacobs definitely paints the most alarmist picture, and and Bud Hopkins too. I remember reading his his books, and and they both paint al alarming pictures of of where we're going. Now, of, of course, David Jacobs is retired. Uh, Bud Hopkins has passed on. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I know that there's been a lot of uh, more recent contactees who have come forward talking about their experiences with uh, these human-looking, beautiful human-looking extraterrestrials, typically described as Nordics that are working with governments. So, you know, are we talking about the same faction that previously worked with, say, people like Enoch in the antediluvial world? Now, I would say that from my perspective, and this is what I write in the book, that the this angelic faction that I that I denominate the elder race, they are the Nordics. From that's that's my hypothesis that this is these are the Nordics, and uh, and among the Nordic race, let's say, there are at least two different factions. There are, to simplify it, there are the good guys and the bad guys, and the good guys are are working for the benefit of mankind, and the bad guys are working to the detriment. And control and manipulation of mankind, and ultimately, um, their their war is more with the good guys, the 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 Elohim. Let's say the good Elohim with with the Son of God and the Kingdom, and uh, and we're sort of a, a, a you might say a casualty in that war. We're in the way to some extent. So um, that's how I would break that down. So the Nordics would be the elder race. And then there's certainly the greys, which are, you know, the gray insectolin faction. Um, uh, I think there is something to the reptilian stuff, although I'm, I'm, I, I don't really know what to think about that. But I, I think we, we do have several factions in play. But I would caution people 
um, uh, from just assuming that the Nordic faction in general is is benevolent. I would say that we're looking at, uh, we have to understand that within that faction are factions, within that race are factions rather. And, uh, and nothing is as you know, simplistic as, as we might think. I think it's very, very highly complex. Um, yes, I would actually agree with that, that um, you know, people do kind of like sometimes depict the Nordics as the good guys. But uh, as you say, there are factions within the Nordics. And, um, and, some, and I know that the Germans, uh, the, the Nazis, uh, did work with a, a, a negative faction of Nordics that uh, helped them develop a secret space program and mm -hmm. um, that the US Navy worked with a positive faction of the Nordics, which helped them build their space program. That's according to my research and the people that I've been working with, uh, supporting that, uh, yeah, this, this Nordic influence is very pertinent to our current exopolitical situation on the planet. Now, I'm curious, and I know it's uh, not my place to ask questions, but uh, I, I'm just curious what your thoughts are regarding the, the, the Vril. Who do you think the Vril were? You know, well, the, the, the Vril Society of the Nazis, and they were always looking to contact the Vril, who were this allegedly this race of entities that lived under the ground. Well, uh, yeah, very interesting. I think that you know, th there was some kind of underground civilization uh, that the Nazis were involved with. And, uh, you know, I, I think uh, based on my research, uh, they, they look at humans as kind of like genetically impure. Uh, they, they look at us as a very aggressive race and they kind of keep a distance. And I think the Nazis wanted to make deals and, and to a certain extent they were able to establish some collaboration and they did get some help from a, a, a kind of negative Nor uh, Nordic group. I mean, I know that, for example, Operation High Jump, uh, the, the Germans down there weren't quite ready uh, to tackle uh, you know, the, the Navy um, Armada, the Naval Armada that went down there. They, they had at least one, maybe two aircraft carrier battle groups that went down to take out the Nazi bases down there. And uh, they, they were helped by this uh, Nordic by this negative Nordic group. So, you know, whether they were part of this Vril underground society, because Vril itself just means a force. I mean, Edward Bulwer-Lytton just mm -hmm. described That's Vril right. as a psychic force. Mm -hmm. But some underground civilizations learn how to harness it, and, the, and the, the Nazis were very interested in making contact and learning how to harness that themselves so that they could develop these uh, super weapons to win the war. Yeah, it's it's very fascinating. I, I think one of the most intriguing things about the the Nazis and this, you know, all the, the the lore surrounding Nazis and extraterrestrials is is the the Vril Society. The, the I think they called them the Vril Maidens. Maria Orsic, I think, was one of the Vril Maidens, and that they would uh, make contact with these entities through, um, let's say, through psychic means and uh, uh i always wondered you know what uh, what what exactly what exactly that implies that uh, that they were attempting to make contact through psychic means and 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 if they did make contact and i think that they did make contact with something um and were able to get uh schematics because i think uh, the story goes that uh, they got like sch schematics and 
I think even in uh, uh, in in Sumerian or something like that, or in the in the coded Templar um, a script or something like that through these psychic means. That's always intrigued me. But there's no questions. There's absolutely no question that the Nazis were were obsessed with the occult. Um, and also not just with the occult, but also trying to derive new technologies and weapons through contact with with superior entities and even extraterrestrials. So it's hard for me, though, to parse fact from fiction. There's so many stories. There's it's sort of a uh, uh, there, there are so many variations of these stories. Um, but certainly, I think that in Project High Jump, we encountered um, saucers. And uh, who those saucers belong to, I don't believe if the, if the Nazis had actually developed that kind of technology, I think they would have won the war. I think they were very close to developing that kind of technology. But uh, obviously, the Allied bombing campaigns put an end to that. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the Nazis uh, definitely had a technological uh, advantage in terms of aerospace vehicles. I mean, they did develop, of course, the V1, V2 rockets. Mm -hmm. They developed jet engines jet uh, long-range rockets they developed all of these but they they just in the end um didn't didn't develop them in sufficient quantities uh and, and i think hitler was kind of like uh, outsmarted i think uh british intelligence uh, i think uh, kind of like used whatever techniques they they could get to to get him to make all these mistakes like attacking russia i mean if they didn't attack the soviet union i mean uh, nazi germany would have won the war no question uh, about they, it but they they attacked the but they attacked the Soviets because apparently uh, Hitler's astrologer exactly. told him that told him that you know he'll achieve great success. So um, so yep. uh, British intelligence or someone uh, was able to kind of get the Nazis to make all these mistakes. And yeah, Operation Barbosa was the biggest blunder mm -hmm. of that war, and and thank God because it had not Hitler directed his military had not he opened up another front in the in the war then i i don't think we would have been able to defeat him but the, the you know the bombing campaigns too is what really threw him off guard i don't think he i don't think he expected that the western powers that the allies would bomb non-military targets firebomb dresden for example uh, i think that uh, really surprised him and another aspect of all of this is that uh, one thing that the Nazis definitely were developing, definitely were developing, but not fast enough and not soon enough, were deep underground military bases. And had they developed more of those sooner, you see this if you read Elbert Speer's book, um, had they developed them sooner, they could have put all of these, all, most of their manufacturing underground. They could have put a lot of these um weapons programs and a lot of their industry underground and and again had they done that i don't think we would have been able to defeat them um but we then came over in, in, in operation paperclip and we took the the architects the engineers of these underground bases they were called the tote organization that was building these these underground bases we took them over back over to the United States, and guess what we did with them? We started to build our own deep underground military bases and, and, uh, and, and obviously still do to this day to much, to, with, with much greater efficiency and capability. So in, um, in Birthright, you, you, you show or you kind of like describe this uh, dynamic, which is uh, you know, a very interesting one where uh, you first describe uh, the, the hubrids as, 
as being a national security problem. Uh, then the world governments unite to fight the hybrids or the hybrids and the greys, and humanity starts losing the fight. And then another faction shows up to help us fight the hybrids and greys, and, and they're these beautiful human-looking saviors. Mm -hmm. but, but you say that these are the fallen angels pretending to help. So, um, you know, is that a, di a dynamic that you think is is still going to happen? Absolutely, I think that's why we're having the 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 the, the alien presence. The let's say the disclosure of the alien pre presence, which is kind of being slow walked slow walked right now by the Pentagon. It, it, the context is a national security threat, undoubtedly. It's a national security threat, and. Um, and we're are, the Pentagon is very concerned about the these craft that are pursuing our uh, pursuing our our aircraft and and our battleships and our aircraft carriers and are hovering above our secret military installations. Um, you get the sense that the that the posture of the phenomenon is becoming more hostile, and I believe that. Uh, the, the gray alien threat does constitute a national security threat. It, it constitutes a global threat, obviously, because uh, not not only are Americans abducted, but every basically every culture around the earth is probably uh, to some extent being abducted, at least a, a per percentage of their populace. And so uh, I believe that what we're going to see happen is exactly as you described that um, at, at some point in the future, we are going to be the, the general public is going to be made aware of the gray alien threat, and this is this is a this is a threat for which we have no recourse because their technology is far advanced to ours, and and worse than that, they they're already integrating with 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 hybrids, and how do we find the hybrids? How do we identify them? Um, that would be a, a very serious problem and is a very serious problem for us. And so I believe that what's going to happen is, in the, in, and I lay all of this out in the book, why I believe this is going to happen, but I believe that uh, our quote unquote extraterrestrial saviors are going to show up on the scene. And as you said, the contrast, the juxtaposition between these, these beautiful angelic beings and the and the grays and the and the, the grotesque grays and exotic ex insectolins, the juxtaposition is going to be uh, uh, startling, and uh, and uh, they're going to deliver us from this threat. And there's a reason I believe why they're going to do this and what it's going to lead to, what it's going to precipitate on Earth. Um, and and as you rightly stated, I believe that this faction uh, is going to be that's that shows up to save us. Is is they're either going to be uh, this the Nordic faction, so in other words, the elder race, the angelic faction, or their hybrid offspring. And uh, in my book, I postulate that the hybrid offspring of 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 these entities of the of these insurrectionary members of the elder race that that their offspring will let's be more specific, the leader of that group, his offspring his son will be a hybrid and that that hybrid will be the individual that the that the writers of the new testament describe as the son of perdition and the man of sin who we know as the antichrist and that his name will be apollo 
And uh, and all of this, it seems like I'm just, you know, shooting from the hip here. But all of this is detailed in the book. Why you may people may disagree with me, but but um, you'll see at least if you read Birthright, why I draw these conclusions and, 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 and how I see all of this shaping up. I believe that ultimately where we're headed is to a scenario that that John in Revelation describes as uh, Armageddon. And Armageddon is not a, a war with Israel. If you if you if you pay attention to the details of, of Armageddon in the book of Revelation, you'll you'll understand that Armageddon is not just a, a geopolitical war against the nation of Israel. Rather, it's it's actually a conflict with God himself. And um, well, I, I know that there's um, been a, a quite a bit written about that scenario. I, I remember reading uh, oh, I think it was a good 10 years ago, uh, Chris Putnam and Tom Horn's book, uh, Exo Vaticana, where they kind mm. of described a very similar scenario to what you described, and the Vatican uh, would actually work with this kind of like a group of extraterrestrials that would be human-looking, and they would use that to establish this kind of new world order, and and that that was some something that the Vatican uh, has been planning uh, for some time, and I, and I think that uh, that kind of, to me, makes uh, sense that the Vatican, if uh, if they're involved in any kind of disclosure, that it would be part of this kind of false flag where you have these kind of like positive human-looking aliens or these, um, pos these pos sorry, these um, beautiful-looking Nordic extraterrestrials who are, in fact, uh, corrupt or that they're part of a negative faction, kind of like working, teaming up with uh, the Pope and with Vatican and uh, whatever other world leaders want to work with them. And, and, and there, was, there was a book uh, that came out in 1995 by this uh, French-Canadian uh, journalist, uh, Serge Monas, called Project Bluebeam, where he, he described that very scenario, that first there would be the invasion and then there would be mm. salvation by this group of extraterrestrials but that would all be wow. part of this false flag narrative wow i had no idea that uh that that someone had written that narrative that definitively um long before me that's that's really intriguing i'll have to get a hold of that book but um yeah i i, I do believe and of course this is a wild speculation on my part but i do believe that the vatican is uh is anticipating the arrival of alien saviors and that these alien saviors will look very much like us. They'll be the Nordic race. Um, and, uh, and, and there are indications if you follow closely what, uh, uh, what the Holy See is doing in terms of theology, they have been for the last decade laying a theological foundation for the arrival of these extraterrestrials. And in fact, uh, Guy Cosmonalgo was famous for going around, uh, the, a Vatican astronomer, a Jesuit Vatican astronomer, going around talking about, yes, we will ultimately or possibly make contact with an extraterrestrial race, and this extraterrestrial race may be, uh, may be morally superior to us. Uh, we'll, we, we may baptize this race into the church, or this race may baptize us. And, and sort of this kind of this is very strange talk coming from Je a Jesuit. Um, and, and you can see again, if you, if you take a look at the theology that's, that's being crafted uh, by the Holy See, 
it is in anticipation of something of of in anticipation of some kind of revelation that's coming that's that's going to um, in their mind, it's going to demand a reworking of traditional Christian theology. Not in my mind. In my mind, it's exactly what is predicted uh, in in the biblical narrative. But but uh, it would not surprise me at all. And, and again, this is wild speculation on my part. But it would not surprise me at all if the Vatican wasn't all if members at the highest level at the Vatican were already in contact in some way, shape, and form or form with this extraterrestrial race. Um, but again, at the very least, they're laying the theological foundation for their arrival. Well, I, I don't doubt that uh, you know, members of the deep state or this kind of like a Luciferian global elite, uh, that they are working with or have been working with negative extraterrestrials. But I, I you know, my research, I've been working with quite a number of uh, people that have had contact or know of a, a positive Association of uh, Extraterrestrials, and uh, you know there was that uh, Israeli professor, uh, Professor Hayim mm -hmm. Eshed, who talked mm -hmm. about the Galactic Federation. And so, uh, you know, there are a number saying that this Galactic Federation are positive, that they're working with kind of like white hats and positive Earth militaries, uh, an Earth alliance to fight against the deep state. So, you know, again, you know, there are very clear parallels with the Book of Enoch because the Book of Enoch described a similar war, a war on, in the heavens and mm -hmm. on the earth. Right. And uh, you'll recall that in the Book of Enoch, the watchers who we discussed last time, who I believe are just, these are members of the elder race. These are um, high, let's, let's say high-ranking members of the elder race. They're, they're part of the, the, this council, um, this divine council. These watchers... Um, it was it was from this faction that you that you got these these uh, malevolent beings who came down to the earth. Uh, it was a, it was an act of treason, let's call it, against against the kingdom of heaven. They come down to the earth, but they're from this same faction, from this the Watchers, and they began to uh, to do the things that they were that they had decided to do, and the things we discussed last time. The the Progeneration of hybrid offspring with the daughters of men, and the and the uh, the exchange of technology of uh, of uh, knowledge and technology for the, these daughters' hands in marriage by their fathers and so forth. Um, uh, but but we have to keep in mind this is the same faction. So you you have loyal members of this faction, and you have the disloyal members of this faction, the faithful uh, and the and the rebellious. Um, but the same faction. The same, let's say, let's put it in these terms, the same species, right? The good guys and the bad guys who are operating, both of them are operating on Earth to some degree. Um, you know, in the book of Daniel, for example, we have the watcher designation. The watcher designation is not entirely extra biblical. You actually find it in the book of Daniel. And in the book of Daniel, you have this, this council of watchers who are presiding over the judgment of Nebuchadnezzar. And, and, it's, and they decide, they determine, this council of watchers, that Nebuchadnezzar is, is going to be struck with the, with the mind of a beast. He's going to be given the mind of a beast, and he's going to eat grass like a cow, basically, like a, uh, like a steer for three years. This is a judgment that, that comes from the watchers. So the watchers of heaven are directly interacting, um, even, even in a political sense, on earth. The good, and this is coming from the good guys in the biblical narrative. That, that this is a judgment on Nebuchadnezzar. So, so yes, you you have two factions, even from the even even coming from a biblical worldview within the biblical narrative. You have two factions of the same 
again, let's use the term race, the same race of beings that are that are operating on Earth, um, one for the benefit of mankind and one to the detriment of mankind, one as faithful operatives and operatives and agents of the kingdom of heaven and others as as apostate sons and rebels and enemies of the kingdom of heaven and enemies of God. This is the narrative. And this is an extra this is a terrestrial and an and extraterrestrial conflict that again, according to the biblical narrative, has been in, has been ensuing for many thousands of years. So, I mean, at this point in history, I mean, uh, it sounds, I mean, from, from the book, it, 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 I did come away, you know, from reading it, that it was kind of like, um, you know, it was like there wasn't all that much to look forward to, uh, you know, with the kind of like advent of uh, transhumanism and the implementation of this human 2.0 agenda and, um, you know, people being driven away from you know the, the best jobs because of kind of all of the AI and all of that. But um, you know, I you know maybe because the sources that I've been working with uh, have been kind of like um, giving me information that uh, this, this positive grouping of extraterrestrials, uh, the the uh, elders, the the positive faction of elders, uh, or the Galactic Federation of Worlds, however you want to describe them, that they that they have they they are more successful. Then in the kind of like antediluvial world where you know Plato describes it, that Atlantis sank into this kind of into the abyss because they embarked on imperialism. Whereas now, if we look at our kind of planetary civilization, I mean, there have been attempts to engineer a world war. I mean, in Ukraine mm -hmm. and against China, that the deep state—it's quite clear—that's what they're trying to do. But there are enough, you know, awake and aware humans that are saying no to this. And and because we are saying no, I, I think that the, the you know, like the positive extraterrestrials or the the positive, uh, the uh, the watchers or the faction uh, that they that they are looking at this and they're saying, well, you know, humanity is is saying no to that negative agenda, so we can help them more. And the more they help us, the more likely uh, that we are going to emerge into a future that's going to be one where rather than the negative extraterrestrials triumphing with their agenda, the positive, the positive faction will emerge and, and, and give us an opportunity to, to you know, deal with this kind of whole AI situation. Well, if you read the book of Revelation, you'll see that all hell breaks loose on Earth. And there's all kinds of things happening that are obviously very negative and bleak. Um, and uh, and 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 there's uh, the earth is just ensconced in darkness and, and death and plague and all of this. And, and of course, the rise of the beast, who's going to be the ultimate tyrant, the greatest tyrant the earth has ever seen. Um, but at the end of all of this, you have the most triumphal scene you could possibly imagine. And I referenced it before uh, Armageddon in which the king of heaven and his armies descend upon the earth and to, to vanquish the beast, to vanquish this tyrannical, um, this, this tyrannical empire that's oppressing humanity and, and indeed destroying humanity, that, that the Son of God appears and he vanquishes these enemies and, and ultimately is victorious for 
the human race, because that's if you read, you know, the, the, my book, the, the premise, the theological premise in the beginning of the book is that we were created human. The human species was created to govern the earth and we lose and, and, and that authority to govern the earth. Dominion of the earth is the birthright of mankind. That's why my book is called Birthright. And we were bequeathed the, the, the title deed of the earth to govern it according to the kingdom of heaven, to be, to be the vice regents of the king. And, and that that authority that's invested in us as human beings is, is, is directly associated, is, is innately connected to our genome, to our being human. We are the offspring of Adam. And that's why... Uh, that's why the Son of God became a man. He became a man to redeem mankind. He became a son of Adam to to bring to to um, to redeem, to reconcile and restore the offspring of Adam back into the family of God. Because that's really the biblical narrative. It's about mankind who who was divorced from the family of God. Um, who was sundered from the family of God, going back into the family through Christ. And I can't think of any better story, any, uh, any happier ending than, than, than the Son of God, who is a man now, who was born uh, into the world in the, in the lineage of Adam through David, returning to the earth to reconquer, to, to take back the earth for the offspring of Adam, and to restore mankind to the family of God where he was supposed to be in the beginning. I mean, I think that is the most spectacular, epic story uh, ever told, ever written, is the gospel of Christ. And so you talk about, yes, things will get very dark and will get very bleak uh, on the earth, but but according to the biblical narrative, according to the, um, especially the in the book of Revelation, um, the the it's it's like uh, you know it's like the Lord of the Rings and everything looks bleak and is in his in his in his building to this this final battle at uh, Minas Tirith and and these hideous entities assaulting the walls of Minas Tirith and it looks like all hope is lost but then suddenly the battle is won and victory is snatched from the jaws of defeat that's very much what the biblical narrative is and it's very much the story that's the, that is portrayed and so. Coming from a biblical worldview, I would say that my perspective, the ending, the end game from my perspective is the most glorious, as I said, spectacular, hopeful, wonderful outcome you could possibly imagine. It's the sons and daughters of Adam being redeemed and then reconciled back to God, back to the Father, and then brought back into the family and restored. Everything that was lost in Adam is regained in the Son of God and Jesus of Nazareth. So that is the, again, that is the, the 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 happiest of happy endings that I could possibly envision. Okay, well, that's kind of like not all that different to the kind of conclusions I've I've reached from kind of like my work with different contactees uh, associated with these positive extraterrestrial groups who who are describing something very similar to what you've what you've just explained, that there is this process, but at the end of the process, uh, it's going to be a very happy outcome when all the dark uh, agenda is exposed and humanity is, is liberated. But we're in the process, and this is a very dark time, And but you know, the, the overriding kind of idea here is, is not to lose hope, not to lose hope, and to just 
um, you know, do whatever it is. I mean, I, I know um, you as a Christian and, and I, I would recommend to anyone from any faith that uh, this is a good time to like connect with your faith or connect with uh, something that makes you more aware of that kind of transcendent element within you so that uh, that helps expedite this this process. So, so Timothy, where uh, can people get uh, Birthright and uh, where do they go to kind of like learn more about you? Uh, you can get Birthright on Amazon.com or Walmart.com and BarnesandNoble.com. Um, uh, you can track with me. My website is TimothyAlbrino.com. My YouTube channel, uh, I put a lot of content on there. It's just my name, Timothy Alberino. Social media, my name, Timothy Alberino. Um, and so uh, no spaces or dots or underscores or anything between my first and last name on, on Instagram and Twitter. But uh, I have a mailing list. People can sign up to my mailing, my mailing list. I'm always doing trips. I do expeditions. I'm doing one in Peru in June. And then I'm doing a conference in Costa Rica in February. So I've always got events going on if people are interested in those. But uh, yeah, the book you can get on Amazon. Probably Amazon's the easiest for people. Uh, well, definitely worth uh, reading. I, I did enjoy reading it. A lot of uh, a wealth of information. And uh, I want to thank you, Timothy, for coming on Exopolitics today. Thank you very much, Michael. My pleasure. You have been listening to Exopolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala. Please remember to like, share, and subscribe to this channel. Join or start a conversation in the comments. Take the time to explore the vast library of best-selling books, webinars, and podcasts by Dr. Sala. Visit exopoliticstoday.com.